Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. So this week, we actually have a doubleheader for listeners. Starting off, we have our interview with the director, Joyce Chopra, about her memoir, which recounts how she kind of came of age first as a documentary filmmaker and then as a feature filmmaker. And then we have your interview with Chris Smith, who is the director of a new movie called Senior out on Netflix about Robert Downey Sr. So really exciting. So we've got Hollywood kind of across generations in both of these interviews. Yeah, I bet that Joyce and Robert Downey Sr. are of a similar generation, maybe not exactly the same, but I think it's also stories of people who, you know, were in and out of the popular film industry and achieved success perhaps more outside of it and then struggled within it. Totally. And then came back around to making projects um, on their own terms in a way. I, I know that seems to have been the case for Robert Downey Sr. and Joyce figured out a way to continue working. I believe she's in her 80s, so and she's yeah. still working. Yeah, it's amazing also thinking about, you know, I know we got into this in the Joyce Chopra interview, the incredible changes in filmmaking technology that happened across the careers of these, you know, directors, performers, writers. And that was particularly driven home to me, just that Joyce was actually literally cutting tape, like not as, as a euphemism, but like stitching tape together. And now, you know, was telling us, I loved hearing how much she loves being able to edit tape on the computer. You know, I would have thought she might've been nostalgic, but she's like, oh God, no, it's great being able to just get in there and like do it quickly and send it off. Yeah. Chris and I also talked a bit about that, like changes to technology and industry and what that means for what kind of projects get made now. Yeah, I guess uh, technology doesn't change so much for for writers, but... Yeah, well, in a way, right? Like, But I guess you're right. At the end of the day, even with all the bells and whistles, it's still the same word processor that we had like <laughs> right. back in the like 80s you or can, 90s. You can still write by hand. Um, exactly, you can still yeah. do that. <laughs> so... Simpler, right. simpler uh, game. Okay, let's let's listen to those interviews. Let's do it. We're excited to have Joyce Chopra on the line with us today. Joyce is an award-winning writer and director of both feature films and documentaries that often explore women's lives and sexuality. Her films include the 1985 movies Smooth Talk, an adaptation of a short story by Joyce Carol Oates that won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Dramatic Feature at Sundance and the Independent Spirit Award for Best Director, as well as American Film Festival Blue Ribbon winners, including That Our Children Will Not Die, Girls at 12, and Joyce at 34, the autobiographical documentary that started her career. She joins us today to talk about her memoir, Lady Director, Adventures in Hollywood, Television and Beyond. The book traces Joyce's career from her earliest inspirations as a young girl growing up near Coney Island who tried to imagine herself into a director's chair where she saw only men. The memoir then carries us through the projects that launched and carried her storied career across TV news, documentaries, and feature films. Interlaced into these tales is the very human story of a woman trying to make her way in the world amid struggles with family, lovers, the word, and the screen, all told in prose that is as gripping as it is refreshingly candid. Throughout Lady Director, our readerly gaze is directed at the bigger questions the memoir is after, how women combated sexism in the entertainment industry before the Me Too movement and in its wake, and how Joyce's singular story offers a path for women in film and beyond to find liberation, creative achievement, and that moving target that we all call happiness. Welcome to the show, Joyce. It's wonderful to have you. Joyce, maybe you could start by telling us why at 20 you bought a Bolex camera? That's how your book opens. Why, how did you know that you wanted to direct films? Well, I certainly didn't know that growing up in Coney Island. I, I used to go to the movies every Saturday. My mother was cleaning house and my older brother was commanded to take me out. And so we would go to double features. I loved the entertainment, but it was only when I was in Paris for junior year abroad that I 
fell in with a bunch of Swedish painters who used to go to the Paris Cinematheque and where they would, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but first of all, it's the first time I ever heard movies referred to as film, where people actually discuss style of a film, who had made the film, and it just stuck in my brain. But at that point, I wanted to be an actress, and I realized that I would never survive auditions, and I said, well, the heck with this, I'll be a director, but I didn't, I was still thinking theater, and I left, I went back up to Cambridge, I had gone to Brandeis University, which is just outside of Cambridge. And I ran into a classmate and I, I had a degree in comparative literature. And the year you have to understand is 1958. And the jobs for women were secretaries or waitresses, which I did. And I didn't want to be a secretary. I didn't want to learn shorthand. So we decided we'll open our own business. The heck with this, which is a little crazy because I was just, I guess I just turned 21. So we, I borrowed $1,000 from my parents and we opened up what was going to be a French-style coffee shop with foreign newspapers on wooden racks. <laughs> and right before, the night before we were going to open, a jazz pianist, a student at Harvard, came and said, do you want me to play for the opening? And we said, oh, that would be great. It was a sensation because there was no live music in Harvard Square. And we became a jazz destination, kept going. And then uh, a year later, a man came in and said, would you audition the daughter of a friend of ours, a professor at MIT? And well, what instrument does she play? Well, she's a folk singer. And I said, well, we don't do folk music here. No, thank you. He said, well, you at least audition this young woman. She's a freshman at BU. Oh, okay. So the following Monday night, he came in, this young woman, Peter, the man and the young girl, and she got to the stage and she opened up her mouth to start singing, and it was Joan Baez. <sighs> I just almost fell off my chair because the voice is so big and extraordinary. So we hired Joan for $10 a night, which was more like $50 a night. And she sang on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and then she switched to the weekends. But I was running a film series. The point of all of this, telling you about the club, is I was running a film series, naturally European films. I was a great snob. And... I just fell in love with, I said, this is what I want to do. So it started with that film series that I became convinced and I bought a Bolex camera. I'm, asking, I'm coming around to answering your question. And to start with, I was afraid to use it. First of all, I bought it secondhand. It didn't come with any instructions. There was no internet where you could read about how to, just about anything now. And so it just sat there saying to me, I dare you, come on, use it. And I finally did, but it took quite a while. I was really interested that you got your start in documentary journalism and filmmaking. And I wanted to hear a little bit about what appealed to you about that format as kind of a fledgling filmmaker and then director. You're reading something into it that's not accurate. I don't blame you for doing that. I had never seen a documentary, I don't think. Where would I have seen them? You, if you go to the movies, you see News of the Week. I was looking for a job with fiction films. That's what I wanted to do. And I accidentally wound up in the midst of a revolution in documentary filmmaking. But I didn't set out to do that. And of course, once I started working with these people, this is Leacock and Penny Baker and Bob Drew, I loved it. But I didn't set out to use this as a bridge. It was the only job in film I could get at that time. Why was it more accessible? Let's talk about that then. Like, why was that more accessible to you than feature films at the beginning of your career, at least? Well, first of all, there weren't any feature film opportunities. I tried, first I tried the major networks. In fact, there was no cable television. So I went to ABC, NBC, CBS in New York. I said, I would like to become an assistant to a director. They said, what are you, crazy? I mean, go. I tried a whole bunch of places getting absolutely nowhere. And then finally, somebody introduced me to Penny Baker. But there was little opportunity, in fact, zero opportunity. Even with documentary, there were few, there was hardly any, very few. In fact, I don't know of any. But yet, what's so interesting is that you ended up kind of on the ground floor of this very, very important movement in American documentary, and then ended up making such a momentous autobiographical documentary of your own when you made Joyce at 34. 
So I'm curious about that, the influence once you finally were initiated of the verite style and how you then harness that to make a film about yourself as a woman having a child and being a working woman. I became pregnant when I was 33. I'd made a number of documentaries by then. I was very worried that I wanted to have a baby suddenly out of the blue. I never wanted one until I met Tom Cole. And I was really worried that I was very concerned about my identity then, that I would no longer be seen as a woman director. As Yes, we used to call it men directors and women directors. It was all divided. And I took a job in my eighth month. I was offered a job to produce a documentary about a Montessori school down in Manhattan. And I told this to a friend of mine. She said, well, why don't you do a film? You're in a unique position to do a film about yourself and your mother to see if your relationship changes when you become a mother. And my response was, are you crazy? That is narcissism, pure and simple, because nobody makes films about First of all, nobody makes films about themselves. And two, who's ever heard of a documentary about a private person? If you look at all the Penny Baker, Leacock, Drew's, those films, they are public events, famous actors, somebody on death row. It's nothing to do with the private life. So I thought, well, this is a really good idea, but I'm going to do it about my marriage and working. And that's what happened. I shaped my film more than... If you get into a whole question of what is verite, is this such a thing as truth? Because the minute you look through the camera, you're choosing what to film. So this whole idea that we're just filming reality is nonsense to me because, yes, you, unless Fred Wiseman, who films for hours and hours and hours and hours and his films are forever, but even then he chooses. Well, of course there's editing. I mean, yeah. And that's how you shape a film. It's funny that I've seen Joyce at 34. I actually screened it as a part of a series that I organized. And the part that I remembered the most was this scene with all these older women. It's such a succinct way of showing where you come from and showing kind of the generation previously and the women that you knew growing up. I'd love for you just to talk about that part of the film. My mother was a school teacher in Brooklyn and she was retired. And every, probably every couple of months or so, the retired teachers would get together and show pictures of their children, weddings, <laughs> or misfits, whatever it was. And uh, I just had a hunch that this was gonna be interesting. So I asked my mother to ask the other ladies if it would be all right to film there. And Claudia and I arrived and they were yakking away and talking and enjoying themselves. And I said, could I ask just one question? Did you ever have any conflicts between working as a teacher and parenting? And they exploded. They had never discussed it in the 30 years they'd had lunch five days a week. Nobody ever discussed it. That's why you see this explosion of talk. They went on after, we stopped filming after, and they kept going and going and going. As I say in the book, we literally watched their consciousness rising, not raising. They, <laughs> it was going up. You transition kind of in the 1980s. So Joyce at 34 is the early 1970s, and then you kind of have that career that's moving forward, and then you make a distinct shift into feature films in the 1980s, and that's in large part in partnership with your late husband and writing partner Tom Cole. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that transition felt like and what you see as similar and different about directing and writing features versus a kind of documentary film? It's totally different because you're shaping a whole world. Okay, this luncheon of the school teachers, I didn't pick what room we were going to film in. I didn't pick the clothing. I, I didn't fix... They did everything. Literally there, I was doing cinema verite. You know, we were just panning from face to face. And with the feature, you're choosing everything. You're making up the story, you're making up the set. You wouldn't exist without the director. I loved it. Do you find that freeing or is that its own kind of burden? Because I think that's usually a thing people don't understand, especially in like writing novels. They're like, oh, well, you can just make all of it up. And it's like, well, yes, but you have to make all of it up. <laughs> oh God, all of it up, exactly. Yes, I so enjoyed doing that much more than making documentaries because it engaged all sorts of 
my brain in a way a documentary can. But I'm very grateful that I still make them now. So I can still be involved with edit. I edit at home now because you could do it on the computer. Well, that's also a huge, I mean, one of the fascinating things about your career is that it spans tremendous technological change. I know. I started when there was the upright movieolers. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of them, but... Yeah, that literally are scrolling actual tape forward, and that when you were editing, you were literally cutting pieces of tape and stitching them back together. I know, it just seems so remarkable. But, you know, to this day, when I, uh, I'm working with somebody else and I say I want a cutaway of someone, instead of saying a two-second cutaway, I put my hands up because I know that's 48 frames. <laughs> and I can't stop myself. Okay, about this long, I'm converting it into film. Strips... It's like word processing, whoever is listening. You're dealing with strips of information that you piece together. In Word, you can shift any way you want, delete. That's what editing is. You're just shifting around your different images. But in those days, it was film strips. Are there parts of that old process that you miss or you're, like, nostalgic for? Or is it like, no, I love being able to sit at my computer and just do it quickly? You can keep multiple versions of what you're cutting, whereas with film strips... You had to recut that same beat up, what we call a work print, working print, which would then be conformed to the original negative. It's a very laborious, hands-on process. But I know when I've almost finished the book, I said, my God, that's what you said. I, they were using that moviola that I first started on at the beginning of film. Nothing had changed until, I don't know when, digital didn't happen until early 1998 or 99. Because I cut my first TV film in 2000 and one on it. It was extraordinary to use a digital. Film was converted to digital. We didn't shoot on digital. We were still shooting on film. Oh, well, that's a whole separate story. I wanted to talk about Smooth Talk because it was such a triumph for you. And it, it was such a remarkable film. And it was so well received and... For listeners who haven't seen it, you cast a very young Laura Dern giving this remarkable performance and Treat Williams, and it's an excellent film. And it seems like that was a high point or the high point of your time in Hollywood, and things evolved very quickly after. I'm curious, you know, Hollywood is a pretty awful business. I think that's been well established over the years. And how much was that, you know, you just entering this more commercial aspect of filmmaking? And then how much do you think was this uneasy relationship to you being a woman and a a woman director? Both. Chum and I were basically hicks, you might say. I mean, I grew up in New York. We were living in the country. We were... uh, Mom and pop shop, so to say. And it was because of a connection to American Playhouse, a TV series on PBS. I had produced a play of my husband's for their first season. So that really whetted my appetite to get back, to really try this time to do feature films. And they encouraged me to go ahead and to write Tom Murtha's screenplay, but I collaborated heavily on it. And then when it got these great reviews, which floored me and Tom, within one day, on the same day, sitting in the country in Kent, I get a call. It's Diane Keaton. Would I direct a Larry McMurtry film script she has? Five minutes later, this is Jim Brooks. I'd love to meet you. This is Steven Spielberg's office. Steven wants to meet you. And it went on and on. I then took the film up to Toronto Film Festival And Brian, oh God. De Palma. Brian, thank you, De Palma, was in the audience. And afterwards he came up, he said, do you have an Asian? Because you're going to have a really big career. This is a great movie. No, we don't have any Asians. He said, well, I want you to call my agent. He's a top agent. And so we go out to Hollywood and we're just overwhelmed. And we were just so unprepared after that. If I could now go back to where I was, I would know what to do. But at that point, I couldn't. What kind of stuff started to happen? So you're getting all these opportunities, but what kind of stuff started to happen after? I I can't say fell in love with, but I was much taken with a novel, Bright Lights, Big City, that had a teenage young hero. And Tom and I saw the possibility. I didn't like, I liked the story. I didn't much love the writing. 
Anyway, Sidney Pollack had the rights to this. And in five minutes, and his young partner, Mark Rosenberg, loved smooth talk. I don't think Sidney did, but we were hired. I was hired to direct and Tom to write. And we were partway into production when Sidney and I began to fight. He called me into his office one day and said, you have to fire your cameraman who had shot Smooth Talk. I didn't know why. He said, he talks too much. And the reason for that was the man's name was Jim Glennon, James Glennon. And he started out, as you have to do in that union, as first a loader of the film, and then he became what's called an operator. And before the days of videos that everybody now has when they're filmed, he was the one who actually moved the camera and followed the actors. So although you as a director would say where you want to start and where you want to end the shot, once I say action, we're in this person's hands and it's only until you screen dailies. Anyway, so Jim had been the most accomplished camera operator in the business and he'd only shot my film and one other. And for some reason, Sidney got it in his head that he was no good and I refused to do it because I felt I owed everything to Jim because he taught me. I never went to film school. When I was planning shots, I was doing it with Jim. From there on in, it was just a disaster. And he fired me. Well, yeah, it took a month. I was fired after a month of filming. Sidney Pollack fired you. He called me and he said, Joyce, the worst has happened. They want you off the picture. And I couldn't recover for a few years. I was so... I hated him for so long. It's interesting to me that this comes up because several times throughout Lady Director, you return to, at various points, struggles with anxiety or imposter syndrome or similar such things. But it also seems like there were struggles that you had all along kind of trying to make your way. And on the one hand, I think this is a burden against which all creatives struggle, but particularly those who are on the margins. So these would be people of color, women, queer folks, those type of folks. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed to come to grips with those feelings and kind of power forward your career in moments that would feel totally ending, like when Sidney Pollack, like, you know, kicks you off of a film? Yes, I was anxious for that film because he was over my shoulder literally all day long for every shot. It was frightening. It was like my mind now associates to Trump hovering behind Hillary Clinton during their debate. And I wanted Hillary to turn around and tell him to fuck off. I'm sorry she didn't. And I should have said, Pollock, back off. You know, you're not supposed to be here. The Directors Guild, my union would come and I never told anybody. It was so stupid. I was so inexperienced and frightened. But that's also the thing, right? That people in that position, they don't feel like they can tell that person to fuck off. Yes, because he's the boss. I should have, though. I should have been fired earlier. would have saved me. Because, you know, the real problem is you are, even though I didn't write the novel, once we wrote the script, I wanted to make this movie. I identified with it. I had entered that world, and you don't want to be separated from it. So you put up with a lot of nonsense so that you won't be cut away. It seems like the book really has over and over, I'm, you know, just from growing up within knowing people who worked in Hollywood and knowing how often people stop working because it is so awful and the business is so hard. But I think throughout your story, there's just so many times where you show this remarkable resiliency, this amazing resiliency of, you know, someone knocking on doors, getting groped, you know, having people tell you no and still pushing. And even the fact that you still are working, it seems a testament to that because someone else might not. Do you have any sense of having that? Do you think of it as being a resiliency or do you think of it as being just an obsession that you actually are not happy if you're not working, so you just do whatever you can to do that? Again, I'll say both. The reason I wrote this book, I think I say it often enough in the book, when I'm not making a movie, I'm not as happy, (laughs) I get depressed. But, you know, I could also be gardening. I just have to be making something. And I never developed any serious hobbies except for working in my garden. We lived in the country most of my life, actually. So I was, I had finished one of those documentaries and 
my daughter looked at me, started laughing. She said, oh, you're going to get depressed again. Why don't you write a memoir? And I said, same reaction. You're crazy. That's narcissism. I don't matter, writer, blah, 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 blah. She said, you could do it. At least sit down. it'll just keep you busy and I won't worry about you. So I said, I have no idea where to begin. And then for some reason, I have no idea where it came from. I said, the first line of the memoir, not the prologue is, my father was taking such long steps down Mermaid Avenue that I had a hard time keeping up with him. And Sarah said, that's a good opening. And I have no idea where that, even that sentence came from. So then I never, I just kept writing it, but I wasn't thinking about writing a book that would be published at that point. It was just, keep it busy. <laughs> What's the Yiddish phrase that you mentioned in the book that's equivalent to having ants in your pants? Spiltus. Yeah. I looked how to look up how to spell it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I have, I'd have Spilkes. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit as we kind of wrap up here. How conditions for female filmmakers have changed since you started your career in the 1970s and today? And where you think maybe we've made progress, but also what road we still have left to travel? The Me Too movement changed everything for episodic television. It's only three or four years ago, but when I started directing some of those Law and Order shows and a few others was early, I don't know, I have to look at my own resume, let's say 2002 or three, there were hardly any women. I mean, literally hardly anyone. I even looked up the statistic on Game of Thrones, only one woman in all those years directed an episode. It's impossible to believe. And with the Me Too movements, there was an explosion of we gotta do better for episodic television, not for feature films. The director of episodic television is really directs that week's secondary actors, the ones who are just cast for that episode. If it's a crime show, it's the victims of that week, but the main cast is there. They don't design the set. They really are there to call the shots and keep on schedule. Whereas feature film, as I was saying, you do everything. And that's a big leap. Also, there's a lot more money in feature films. So I don't, I think it'll have, it's happening faster, certainly than when I, but I still look at the, the weekly email I get from the Directors Guild, which is films being screened at the screening rooms in LA and New York. And it's again, I would say 80% male directors at the most, but that's better than 10%. What advice would you give to a young filmmaker starting out today? Don't do it. Don't do it, why? <laughs> half joking. I think it's very hard. I think you have to really love it and just know what you have to do it. I, for some reason, I was bitten badly and I had to do it. But I'm not joking. You think I'm joking. Actually, when people say, I had a book signing, they were showing uh, Smooth Talk and a few other films at a film theater in Manhattan last weekend, Film Forum. And they were selling books in the lobby and people coming up for me to sign them. And there was more than one young woman who said, oh, I would like to be a director do you have any advice for me? I said, only half joking, don't do it. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, what helped you get through those like parts that were really difficult? Just sheer bullheaded force? Stupidity, I don't know. I just kept going. That's how I ended up. I had many different endings and I just finally had to wrap the book up. I already had City Lights to publish it and I just wrote Maybe that's the point of all this, just keep going. And that's basically what I do. Luckily, I'm still pretty healthy and I'll just keep going. Maybe that's a, a better piece of advice than don't do it. No, I did say then, if you love it, keep going. Don't let anybody knock you down. No, yes, yes, yes. We've been speaking with Joyce Chopra, author of Lady Director. Thanks so much for joining us. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Joyce Chopra, author of Lady Director, Adventures in Hollywood, Television, and Beyond. We now turn to our interview with Chris Smith, director of Senior. I'm happy to be speaking with the filmmaker Chris Smith today. His films include the cult classic American Movie, the Yes Men, The Pool, and docu-series hits like Bad Vegan, which I totally loved, and Tiger King. He joins me to speak about his most recent film, Senior, which is currently streaming on Netflix. It documents the career of the American underground filmmaker Robert Downey Sr., who's best known for his 1969 farce Putney Swope, 
about an advertising agency in New York City. Downey made over a dozen other films, such as Greaser's Palace, Chafed Elbows, and Hugo Poole, which stars his son, the actor Robert Downey Jr., who made his debut in another of his father's films, Pound, when he was only five years old. In Senior, Smith follows Robert Downey Jr.'s experience of reckoning with his father's wildly creative and unconventional life, his complicated parenting, and his painful decline as he struggles with Parkinson's, all the while celebrating the work of a true iconoclast. Thank you again, Chris, so much for being here, and congratulations on the film. So maybe we could start by you just telling me how you came to this project and what your relationship was to the work of Robert Downey Sr. beforehand. Had you seen a lot of his films? Were you already a fan? Or I came to the project through a meeting at Team Downey, which is Robert and Susan's production company. I had floated the idea of doing a documentary on Robert Downey Jr., to which I got a reply that he had no interest in doing a documentary, but he did think that somebody should film his dad. He thought, if you're looking for a subject, he thought his dad could be a good option. So that was kind of how it started. I had seen Putney Swope in college. I think a lot of people that went to film school are familiar with that film. But it, it wasn't until Robert suggested going and meeting his dad that I started looking at his other films. And through that process, just sort of developed this opinion of, of who we were going to meet. And so that started the whole thing. When you wanted to make a, a film about Robert Downey Jr., what was your concept there? Like, what aspect of him were you interested in representing? I don't usually go into things with a preconceived notion. I think it's more an in- instinct that maybe there's a story there. Obviously, Robert's had an interesting journey in terms of the many lives he's led. I thought that maybe there would be um, something there. I A lot of times I'll explore something and... Half the time, it won't result in anything. We'll start projects, start shooting projects, and and not continue. So I'll just often just stay open-minded to looking anywhere and everywhere and just sort of see what unfolds. When you started to watch the films of Robert Downey Sr., watch the complete oeuvre of him, what really jumped out at you? What did you find unique about his films? What were some of your favorites? I think just like the overall unique sensibility. I think anyone that knows Robert Downey Sr.'s work, I think if you saw one of his films, you would easily be able to identify it as a Robert Downey Sr. film. And I don't think you can say that about a lot of people. I think that's a an admirable trait. You know, there's a, a lot of things that you can turn on television, on a streaming service. A lot of movies, there's only a handful of directors, I feel like, that really have created something that is so identifiable to them and only them. And I think that Robert Downey Sr. is one of those directors. When you say identifiable, I mean, describe what is the signature? Is it his humor? Is it the absurdity? Is it the visual? What is it about his movies? It's all of the above. I think it's an irreverence. It's hard to say, but you know it when you see it. It's like a Tim Burton movie. You can, I feel like it was very easy to identify a Tim Burton movie forever. And I think with Robert Downey Sr., it's just a sensibility. I don't know exactly how to put it in words, but it definitely, I think because it's, he often talked about the seven rules, these seven rules that he had created based on another filmmaker that he admired. The last rule of the seven rules was break all the previous rules. So I think he was always challenging us to try to push ourselves to think differently, to do things different, to not fall into patterns that we find ourselves falling into. And so consequently, I think the movie is is different than anything I've worked on, only in the sense that he was constantly challenging us and pushing us to try to think of things differently. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you know, from the opening scene with the cane, he's like moving this, the cane around that he has, the top of the cane and kind of like setting up the shot for you and telling you what to do. I was so incredibly charmed by him just immediately and his humor. And also it's kind of funny, it has a, the film has a meta aspect because we're watching 
your film, but we're also watching kind of his own commentary. And then, of course, he starts to make his own movie within the movie that is just amazingly charming and him kind of leading people around and just looking at various scenes in New York. And um, so he's such a charming figure just from the get-go in the film. And I was wondering what it was like for you to work with him and to be a filmmaker working with another filmmaker who might have different ideas about what he wants the film to be, if that was challenging, if that was inspiring. What is it like to have him as your subject? It was great because he, I mean, both Robert and his dad had such a profound effect on me in the sense that Robert told us a few days before we started filming that we couldn't bring any crew. And I hadn't been shooting myself for over 10 years. And so that in and of itself, changed the way this movie was made because I had to be hands-on in a way that I hadn't been recently. And it sort of brought me back to where I started when I started making movies of, you know, a camera on my shoulder and sort of me alone or me and one person. Or in this case, is like Kevin and I shooting a lot either together. He would shoot some things, I would shoot some things. But that influence, just that alone made this movie so different than anything I had worked on recently. And it also affected the movies that, the work that I've done since, which is, you know, I've continued to shoot and continued to have a different relationship to the film, to the documentaries I'm working on now than I was just recently, because it was easy to get sort of disconnected where you're hiring cinematographers and you're working in a different sort of way. And this sort of opened up something that I, it reminded me of what I loved so much was the freedom of being able to just grab a camera and go shoot. There's definitely this tension in the movie between the kind of films, you know, that Senior made, which were kind of like apart from Hollywood. And when he did enter Hollywood, he had a very hard time and it didn't go well from for him at all. And then there's even this part where Robert Downey Jr. says, like, I had to remind my dad, like, this big company, Netflix, is funding his little movie within this movie, you know, that there's this, even within that moment, you kind of get a sense of these parallel ways of filmmaking and the differences between them. And I think, you know, you encapsulate, and even just in the generations of Senior being this underground filmmaker and then his son becoming a really mainstream movie star. I think Senior was just happy to have people around with cameras because I think I think his ultimate plan was to take over and commandeer the camera crew and sort of start doing his own movie and in some ways he was successful you know he um very early on in the process he decided that we should split up and there should be two versions of the movie which at first I was like I wasn't quite sure exactly what that meant and then as we went on I realized it was so incredibly fortunate in the sense that it allowed us to make our movie without any interference, where I think had there only been one version, I think, I think it would have got much more complicated. Another tension that I felt in the movie is that you're filming someone, you know, who is dying and who's sick and who's kind of in this last stage of their life. And it seems like that is difficult probably just on a practical level of, you know, someone who might not be up to shooting some days. And then also because, I, you know, in some sense, the film is a bit from the perspective of Robert Downey Jr. You feel the sense of him wanting to capture everything and wanting to document his father before he's gone, but also feeling like it would be impossible to really get it all down, that it will always be incomplete because there's no guarding from what is coming, what he senses is coming, which is his father's death. So it, it seems like a heavy moment that you were a part of. I wonder if you could talk about that. It was, but one thing that I thought was interesting is that I think because you get to know and love Senior, there's an element of the movie that is very sad, but... What I liked about the movie is that it doesn't feel depressing. It feels life-affirming. And, and I feel like most of the people I've talked to during screenings or things, that, you know, that they're happy to have met this person that maybe they didn't know much about. I think, obviously, a lot of people know Robert Downey Jr., but a lot of people were surprised to find out that his dad was this maverick filmmaker 
and I had a very different experience than Robert. Like, Senior went to L.A., and it didn't work out for him and sort of went back to New York and couldn't exist anywhere but New York City. And Robert, on the other hand, has stayed in L.A. and figured out how to thrive there. Yeah, I certainly got a feeling that Senior was, even when he's talking about his last project, which is The Park, this documentary he made about a park and just his amazement at everyday life in a park and not knowing what was going to happen, that even though maybe he didn't become a Hollywood star, he was very engaged in what he did and what he was interested in. And you can see it in the film, too, that just, and that that's what makes him such a lovable character is that just walking and looking at some ducks and filming them, it's like he seems very happy doing that. I mean, Rittenhouse Square is... It was so interesting. It was surprising to me that the last movie he had worked on was Rittenhouse Square, which was a documentary. And it, I think it all makes sense, too, because it was Senior was always full of surprises and was always looking for something different. And in the very first interview we did with Senior, he talked about Rittenhouse Square, and he said um, they learned very early on to trust anything and anything could happen. And when we heard that, it was something that just sort of stood out and it stayed with us through the entire course of making the movie because it reminded you of like, what I loved about making documentaries in the 90s was that it did feel new and you would start these projects and you didn't know where they were going to go. And this very much had that feeling where it wasn't like a story that had happened in the past and you're, we need to get these interviews and this archival footage and we'll put it together. This was something that was unfolding in front of us and we were just trying to do our best to capture it in the best that we could. I think that you did, and that's what made the movie, to me, so dynamic. Another tension that I felt in it and that is very sad is that here's Junior, who loves his father so much and is facing his death, and you feel this kind of desperate love, but at the same time, there's a sense in the film and then just other interviews that I've read with Junior that Senior was a very bad father in a lot of ways and that he was really focused on his work, not really being a dad, and that also he, well-known, gave his son drugs when he was very young. You know, it's not actually, I don't know if it's explicitly said in the film, but some other interview I read, it was that when Robert Downey Jr. was six, his father gave him drugs. And you definitely feel this sense that he really wants to confront him about this and that he wants to talk about it, but that he also doesn't want to ruin this, what he does have with his dad, that he doesn't want to, that talking about it would be really difficult. How did you observe that? What did you think about it? What was your balance even as, you know, in the editing process of how much you wanted to put that at the center of the movie, how much airtime you wanted to give that conflict? I think you had an articulate take on the whole situation. So I don't ever want to speak for Robert around this subject, but I will say we started the movie in 2019, and I think that there was an interest in Robert going to have a conversation with his father about everything that had transpired between them. Obviously, COVID happened, and that evolved into this series of these calls between Robert and his dad that we filmed. But still, I think there was an element that still, I don't know exactly, but I can, I know that there's a scene near the end of the movie where Robert says, you know, is there anything that you would want your kid to know? And I, I feel like that that was his attempt to open that dialogue. And at that point, it wasn't really a conversation that could be had. So like so many things in life, I think Robert also says in the film that, you know, I have to paraphrase it, but it was something along the lines of like this idea of Sullivan's travels where you set out to make this really important thing and it goes totally in a different direction, but maybe that's the point. Maybe that is what it's all about, right? And I think when you look at this movie, maybe it, it wasn't exactly what any of us expected, but maybe there's something more profound and poetic in that, in that result than what we would have done had we had control of everything. We also learn in the movie that Senior really struggled with addiction as well but that his drug addiction ended before Junior's. What was his trajectory in terms of being an addict and how he eventually got clean? And how do you think that affected his work? When he talked about being in L.A., I remember asking, like, were those good times? You know, And he was like, I was a drug addict. It was 15 years of 
insanity or it was something like that. And um, he seemed very clear about not promoting a lifestyle of, of using drugs. You know, he was, I think Robert once said to me, at, like, make the movies, don't make the mistakes or something like that. And I think the relationship to his film career, I think L.A. had a bigger impact than anything else. I, I think just like his attempt to go outside of doing a Robert Downey Sr. movie and trying to do Robert Downey Sr. trying to do someone else's movie, I just don't think it was, it wasn't a good fit. You know, he tried to make L.A. work and it just wasn't right. And he talks about it. He said, you know, when he got out there, everyone would be like, do you think this movie's going to make a lot of money? <laughs> and it was so foreign to him as somebody that cared so deeply just about the creative. So I, I think him getting back to New York was so important for him as an artist. It's all those things are complicated to talk about, and I think you get glimpses of it in the movie, but I think that you can sort of take the lesson away either way. Having been maybe coming up more in like the indie film world and, and now working more in commercial films, how did you relate to this sense of like these two worlds that there's like more commercial film and then there's underground film and they're not necessarily reconcilable. I mean, do you think that there is room for someone like Robert Downey Sr. in Hollywood now? I mean, could you picture that or what did you come away thinking about the industry after having worked on this film? That's a good question. I mean, you'd hope there was always room for a Robert Downey Sr. I mean, in a way, I think technology has allowed us the ability for people to discover more niche things that they might really love. And so, you know, I hope that people see this and those that really spark to what they see of his films will go find them and watch them. For me personally, I still make movies exactly the same as I made them 30 years ago. Like, it's a very handmade process with a small group of people that really care about what they're doing. And, um, you know, so for me, I feel very lucky that the process of making films has remained fairly consistent. But I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see a lot of people that are making movies like Robert Downey Sr. that are also having those movies shown on streaming platforms, you know? So I don't know if anything would change. If anything, I think the world's gone further away from that. And I think even in the 90s, we were so hungry for anything different. I remember in high school and in college, like finding a VHS of Andy Kaufman, you'd watch it endlessly because it was different. It was something you hadn't seen before. And I think that like for people that discovered Robert Downey Sr. movies, it was so different than anything you had ever seen that it that was intoxicating. And I think you would hope that there was room for that, but I, I don't I don't know in the world that we're in today if there is. I really it's let's see. Maybe after people see this movie we can see how uh if people start tracking down his films. Yeah, I definitely am planning to watch more now after having seen it, although I'm not a filmmaker. I'm curious, maybe as a last question, what Robert Downey Jr.'s reaction to the film was and how he felt about being a part of it and um, what you guys have been talking about. You know, I think in the early part of the process, it was really going to be a movie about his dad. And I, I think we were trying to put that together. I think we sent them one or two cuts that weren't very good, which is part of the process. Like, I don't have any shame in that. It's Movies are hard. It's hard to make a good movie or what you hope is a good movie. Um, but as things unfolded and there was this final chapter, I think we all needed a little bit of a break from the movie just because it was so, there was a personal element that was hard to ignore. And so I think by the time we came back to the movie, we ended up bringing in a new editor at the end of last year named Dan Kohler, who was instrumental in helping us, I think, sort of see it in a way that we maybe have, had gotten too close. And so... I worked with Dan, and um, I think the early versions of the movie were really looking at Robert Downey Sr. as a filmmaker. And when the movie changed because of what happened, it became much more a movie about the relationship between a father and a son, sort of this meditation on what it is to be an artist, what, you know, meditation on life. And Dan was really helpful in sort of helping shape the movie in a way where Sr.'s work was only used in as much as to inform 
what we needed to know about Senior and his relationship to work and to his relationship with his son, with his wife, and with addiction. So when we finally got that version working, I, I remember we sent it to Susan and Robert, and Susan said that Robert kind of come in the room for a couple minutes and then would leave and come in for a couple... And I think it took him a little while to sort of re-engage with it as a filmmaker for obvious reasons, you know. But near the end of the process, he was instrumental in helping to identify key moments from his dad's films that ultimately became so instrumental in the story that we were trying to tell because they were... You had to be the deepest Robert Downey Sr. fan to understand the nuance and subtlety of the importance of these different pieces and how they would sort of reflect back to the bigger story that we were trying to tell. Thank you, Chris, so much for speaking with me. It really is a beautiful movie, and I'm so glad that you made it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for watching, and thanks for your questions. We've been speaking with Chris Smith, director of the film Senior. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Jiha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. Thank you.